You know, the signs of winter are all around us. There are broken foots and broken ankles and shoulders injured. <laughs> um, I just appreciate Angela was up here. She was moving most, more than most of you, and she has a broken foot. So just, just so you know, um, that's good. We're here to celebrate. So anyway, and if, yeah, you don't have to dance if you don't want to, but you know, it's okay. It's okay. I promise, I promise. How many times have you heard that statement? I promise. How reliable is that statement? Can you pull me down just a bit? How reliable is the statement, I promise? Who says I should believe it when somebody says I promise? Promises are like money, easier kept than made, or easier made than kept. The more we promise, typically the less we expect. And promises are only as dependable as the person who makes them. I promise. How many of you have made a promise to your children only to be reminded later that you did keep it? Is my hand the only one up? Okay, just wanted to make sure we're all here. All of us could probably tell of promises made to our spouse while dating that have not been kept. A daily back rub, you know, things like that. I promise, or promises we, we made to God. I promise, probably two words that cause more doubt than faith. I promise, but what about when God says, I promise? When it comes to church people, some stand on the promises while others just kind of sit in the premises. Some of you won't get that, that's okay. It's an old, it's probably old. So what about God? and his promises. God's promises have to do with something called covenant, covenant. And we're gonna look at this today as we look at God's promises that he made to Abram, made to Abram, soon to be Abraham. And as we return to Genesis, this is us, the beginning. Another beginning in Abram's encounter with God. Today, I promise, I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 15. It's on page 11 of the Bible in the rack in front of you. Genesis 15. Some of you are saying we're only to chapter 15. <laughs> I promise you we'll get through Genesis. Genesis 15, starting with verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. That makes sense. It's pretty hard to cut a bird in half. Anyway, 
Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fall, fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Parasites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergesites, and Jebusites. That was my version, sorry. I promise, I promise. So some of this stuff seems a little weird. We'll hopefully unpack most of it this morning about promise. What does God promise Abraham or Abram? And how does Abram appropriate or how does he receive those promises? So let's start with looking at what the promises are. What are the promises that God gives to Abram? The first promise is protection, protection. Verse one say, it says, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield. It's a, this is a military metaphor for protection. Um, and the question is, did Abram ever fear? Well, we read all those things about Abram, and we find out that he had a lot of fears, and he, we, we find out what he did. And he did then and had reason later to fear because he had a lot of enemies that were out to destroy him. In fact, Abram and his descendants, the Jews, have always had enemies who threatened them. Always had enemies that, that threatened them. The, the enemies of the Jews always intended to wipe them out and destroy them from the face of the earth. Now, have you ever wondered why? Have you ever wondered why? Why, why the Jews? What, what's, the, what's the thing with the Jews? I know of no time in history that someone intended to destroy all the Norwegians off the planet. Okay? Never feared that. Or, or people that said, we need to wipe out the Irish or the Brazilians or Indonesians or whatever. You know, you just don't hear that. Only the Jews. Why? Why? Anti-Semitism has raised its ugly head multiple times throughout history. We read all throughout the Bible, uh, in, in the book of Esther, we find the Arabs in the first century AD, Nazi Germany, Palestinians, Muslims, Iran today, and then there's a resurgence of anti-Semitism in Europe today. The question is, why? What do the Jews have to do with this? Why? Have you ever asked that question, anybody? There's that one, that one nation and that one people group that always becomes the hated ones in all of the planet. Satan incited anti-Semitism all throughout history because Satan knew it was through Abram, soon to be Abraham, that the Messiah, Jesus, was to come, okay? He thought he knew God's plan, and so he tried all throughout history and all throughout the Old Testament, you read many, many times, where Satan incited the nations around Israel to try to destroy them, wipe them up. Satan tried to destroy Israel, the people of God. They were the people of God. And of course, the classic example that we read is that, and Satan thought he had it won here when he, when he 
found when Jesus came and he was the Messiah, he said, I'm going to kill him. And I'm going to end this once and for all. And that he thought for sure that this would be the end of the people of God because he was going to murder the Messiah. But that was God's plan. As we know, we're living after that fact. But before then, they didn't know God's plan. His plan, and, and it says in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 to 8, we looked at this uh, a while back. See, and it says, no, we speak of God's secret wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age, Satan's angels, demons, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So it's like they played into his hands because the Messiah was going to be, was going to be murdered, die on behalf of our sins, and the salvation of all humanity for all time was going to take place. And of course, Jesus didn't stay dead. He was resurrected. They didn't know any of that, even though Jesus told them. You know, they, it, was, it was hidden. It says it was hidden from them. But for some reason, as we know, the Jews have always been the recipients of that kind of anti-Semitism and hatred. Did Abram need protection? Yeah, <laughs> you bet he did. All throughout his life, he needed protection. He, he had enemies on the outside that were around him. He had, he had enemies inside. He, he experienced things that we experienced like fear and doubt. Fear and doubt. And that there were things inside him that, that were trying to destroy him. God tells Abram that anything that would destroy him, God will protect him, to keep him safe. That's why he says, do not be afraid. I am your shield, your protection. Do you ever feel like you need protection? Maybe in the, in the physical realm, maybe you experienced something, that somebody attacked you or somebody threatened you, or it could be just circumstances threaten you, or people, or financial ruin, or health crises, or accidents. We feel like we somehow need protection. If you follow the news, which I'm sure we all do, there were these gun rights demonstrations last week in Virginia. Because why? Because people want to protect themselves. That's something that we are called to do. Protection. They want the right to protect themselves. In the spiritual realm, we, we need protection too from temptation, compromise, crises of faith. Sometimes, sometimes we don't even need, know exactly what we're needing protection from. Sometimes we're just kind of unaware. Because we don't understand the danger, we can't understand the protection needed. I remember as a, as a parent of two daughters, when my two daughters, Brittany and Brianna, were small, we wanted them to learn how to swim. And so we'd take them to the pool. You know, you always start them in the kiddie pool where they can kind of splash around and stuff. And then you move them into the big pool, which to them is an enormous body of water. We wanted them to learn how to swim and be confident in the water. And when they were first exposed to a swimming pool, this very large body of water, I would just kind of carry them from the shallow end towards the deeper end. And I remember their first reaction when they got into deeper water. They, they were fearful. They didn't really understand the danger. But they didn't know that even in the shallow end, they, it was over their head. And their dependence for safety was on dad. Even though they didn't really comprehend that danger. You know, you can do all kinds of things for your children. They don't comprehend the danger that's there. That's I, as a dad, as our Heavenly Father does the same thing for us, we may not even comprehend the danger we're in, whether it's physical danger, spiritual danger. He says, I will protect you. I have a promise for you. I will protect you. 
Many times we feel frightened about the unknown. And God says to him, as he said to Abram, I am your protection. I am your protection. I promise. I promise. The second promise to Abram and to him and to us is, letter B is power. Power. Verse 4 says, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. What, what does that have to do with power? Well, the promise that he was giving him was posterity or offspring. And this speaks to God's promise to overcome the natural with supernatural power. In other words, the power to, to supernaturally or, or for miraculous intervention in our lives. See, not only was Abram very old, but Sarai, his wife, was beyond childbearing age. And we're going to look at this in a few weeks. In the natural, it was impossible for her to have a child. And of course, you wonder, what is this passage? What does it say about uh, who's Eliezer of Damascus? What is that? Well, he was his lead servant. He, and so if, if he didn't have any children, then the person that would inherit everything he had, including all the promises, would be Eliezer from Damascus. And that's just the way it worked back then. Because he didn't have any offspring. And in the natural, it was impossible at this stage in their life to have children. But God promises power. His power to overcome the natural order. The natural order. Now, we are many times in situations that in the natural look impossible. It's just, you're saying, man, this, this is impossible. I, I can't deal with this. This is impossible. I don't have the power. And it might be an impossible marriage relationship, health crisis. Could be an impossible job situation, family, situa uh, family situation, financial shortfall. There may be people here even that, that have experienced or experiencing the inability to have children. When we were pastoring at Tacoma, Washington, there was one young couple that, were, that had, a, had, a, had a young son that was about six years old and they wanted to have more children. And the doctor told them, no, what, you can't have children. In the, in the natural, it was impossible. They, they would never have any more children. But, but they, they said, we're not going to accept that answer. They said, we're going we're gonna to pray. It was Ron and Kitty G. That was her name, Kitty. And I remember we had ministry time and prayer just about every Sunday morning. And Kitty would come forward almost every Sunday, and her prayer was the same. I want to have a child. And, and I'm sure people watched her come forward and say, what, what is she going forward all the time for? She never let up. She just said, I want, to, I want to have another baby. And she prayed. It was impossible in the natural. But that's what God does is his power. Doctors said it was impossible. After more than a year, one Sunday, Ron and Kitty came bouncing in to the church and said, we want you to make an announcement. Because we know a lot of people have been praying for us to have yet a baby. And found out Kitty was pregnant. Several months later, I don't know how many, probably about seven or eight months later, they had a beautiful baby girl. See, God intervenes in the impossible. He is the one that brings to bear the power. We've had many people over the years that have prayed for that, where God said you, they can't have children. In the natural, it's impossible. But we cannot limit the power of God to overcome the natural or the supernatural. God has promised power for the impossible. 
for the impossible. Now, where is that power found? Is it in our commitment to Jesus Christ? Is it working it up? Is it, you know, where is it found? Basically, it's found in the Holy Spirit. John 16, 7 says, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. As Jesus is getting ready to, to depart the earth. He says, unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And in Acts 1.8, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost powers, ends of the earth. It's the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome natural circumstances supernaturally. Power for the impossible. In the Old Testament, where Abram's living at this point in time, God's Holy Spirit came on only certain people at special times. And, and some people today think it's still the same way. Say, so, well, I don't have access to that power. I'm not spiritual enough, or I haven't walked with God long enough, or I, I'm just not worthy of that kind of power. Well, that, that's, not, that's not how it works. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only came on certain people for certain times for special events. Think about David, King David, think of Samson. Elijah, Elisha, you go through all through the Old Testament, it says, and the, and the Spirit of God came on them. But it was not this constant presence of the Spirit. But in the New Testament, after Jesus ascended to heaven, God's Spirit was poured out on all believers. Really? Me too? Yeah. All believers. Anybody who believes in Jesus. In Acts 2, 16 to 17, this was the day of Pentecost. And Peter is describing what just happened. And he says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Power. He will pour out his power. And if there's anything we desperately need today, it's power for the impossible. No matter what circumstance, it's the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's available to all of us, all of us. Now, some people say, how much of the Spirit do I have? It's not how much, how much of God do I have, it's how much of me does God have? How much of me does God have? Power for the impossible. Say, God, take all of me, fill me with all of you. See, life is impossible. God promised Abram power, and he promises us power. And he says, I promise, I promise. The third promise God gave Abram, third promise we find in verse seven, it's permanent possession, permanent possession. In verse seven, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Land and, and the possession of it was critical importance to Abram. Remember, he had left home and family, going back earlier in Genesis. Land, security, and he went to an unknown place. Didn't know where he was going. And God says, I'm going to give you a permanent possession. Now, he's living in tents. He's living as a nomad. And God says, someday, you're going to have this land that you are on as a permanent possession. Now, this passage... This covenant, this promise, is the basis for the establishment of Israel in 1948. This is, this, is, this is their promise. This is our land. It was given to Abram. God's promise to the Jews of a permanent possession. 
And, and this was a prequel to the permanent salvation of all people through Jesus the Messiah. Because it wasn't just this land given to the nation of Israel, which they still possess today, and I believe they're supposed to be there exactly as they are. But we too are given the promise of a permanent possession. That permanent possession is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, possessing every blessing and everything that God has for us, a permanent possession. And in the present, what does that mean today in the present? It means God gives us peace, love, joy, security, strength, direction, purpose, fulfillment. There's a permanent possession that we have in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Nobody can take it away. Nothing can be taken away from you. In John 10, 27 to 28, said, Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. That means this, this relationship, this eternal life, this, and eternal life is present and future. Eternal life begins now because it begins with that possession of a relationship with God. There's no, no possession more important than our relationship with Jesus Christ. And no one can take us out of God's hand. There's security, stability, well-being. We can be at home and at peace. Now, we do retain our free will. We can choose to walk away. That's another sermon another time. But no one can take away this permanent possession of our relationship with Jesus Christ. No one can touch that. It's a permanent possession. God says, I promise, I promise. That's present. There's also future, future. When we think of eternal life, most of us think of heaven out in the way, in the beyond, way out there somewhere. Well, we're given that too, eternal life. It's a permanent possession. And in this day of everything being transitory, we need to hear about and embrace the promises of permanent possession. 1 John 5, 11 to 13, we've looked at this many times. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is eternal, permanent possession, eternal life. Eternal life. Present and future. Now, no one wants to hear about the, the next promise. I'm sure Abram didn't. The fourth promise is, ready? Tough times. Tough times. What? You had to put that in there, didn't you? No, no God put it in the passage. I'm sorry. Verse 13. Verse 13. He says, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. What? Abram's family was headed for exile, subjugation, slavery, and suffering. They were heading, at some point in time, they were heading for tough times. Tough times. God prophetically announces they will go to Egypt and be there for 400 years. 400 years. And those 400 years will be very tough. 400 years. Now, when you, when you compare that, the United States of America has been around for 244 years. This, this people group called the Jews will be in Egypt 400 years, and they will suffer slavery and subjugation. Now, an amazing fact of history, 
The Jews maintained their identity as a people group distinct from the Egyptians for 400 years. Think that's not a miracle? It's an amazing, amazing historical fact. They maintained their identity. They didn't get lost. You know, they could have been absorbed into the society and pretty soon there's no, there are no people of God or Jews left. They're all absorbed. No, they maintained their identity. And then came the exodus, the exodus. Out of those tough times would come a deliverer, Moses. Out of those tough times would come a, a new cry to God for help. They, they realized their dependency on God. A new awareness of their need for God. A, an awareness of their need for change. Out of those tough times that God sent them into came the exodus. The exodus. The exodus became the central historical event for the nation of Israel. They, all look back, they always look back on the exodus, the, the crossing of the, of the Red Sea, the deliverance from Egypt. They, that was the seminal event of, of the history of Israel, of removing them from slavery and bringing them into the land of Canaan. It was an event to remember, looking back at God's mercy, his compassion, his grace, his deliverance, provision, his leading, and his love. All of this came out of tough times. And God says, I promise. We had a young couple in their late 20s in our church in Seattle named Jason and Carly. Jason was a firefighter, Seattle firefighter, and Carly worked in the medical field. And one day at work, Carly slipped and fell and injured her back. Experiencing a lot of pain, Carly began a long journey, a journey many of you may have experienced, a journey through pain, going, and she went from one doctor to the next doctor to the next doctor. Medical doctors and orthopedic doctors and chiropractors, massage therapists, acupuncturists, and on and on and on. No one could find out the cause of her pain. It affected her sleep at night. She couldn't find positions to sleep. I mean, it was just, it was tortuous. And it made even worse because nobody could find out why. She didn't know why. She dealt with this pain for two and a half years. Two and a half years, late 20s. Two and a half years of just incredible pain. One day a local church was hosting an evangelist from Great Britain. His name was David Carr. In fact, when Judy was in Living Sound, they, they did ministry at his church in Great Britain. He had a reputation for not only evangelism, but healing ministry. So I called Carly and I said, Carly, there's a guy who has a great reputation. He's, he's gonna be speaking and doing ministry at this church and I, I recommended that she go. In a miraculous intervention that next night, Carly was healed of her back injury in an instant, in an instant. That the deliverance was amazing. It was, it was life-changing for Carly, her family, everything. It was so transformative. She was ecstatic about what God had done. But her account of the tough times was her real story. When she shared her story, I had her share her story in front of the church. She shared about her miraculous healing which is amazing. But she also 
talked about how God had worked miraculously in her inner person, her spiritual nature through the two and a half years of constant pain. She said through it all, and I quote, I felt like God was saying that hope in him and hope for a cure are different things. Placing her hope in the cure was not in him until she was finally healed. Let me say that again. I felt like God was saying that hope in him and hope for a cure are different things. And that she was placing her hope in the cure and not in him until she was finally healed. No matter what our tough times, God has a work to do in each and every one of us to draw us closer to him. Sometimes we love God for his blessings and don't love God just for himself. Instead, we say, thank you, God, for health and family, plenty and fulfillment, but not thank you, God, just for you. Thank you, God, just for you. Blessings or no blessings, loving God for God has God. Tough times. And I know many of you are right there. And I would encourage you to take God's promise to say, I have tough times, but I'm gonna love you, God, for you. The fifth promise God gives, fifth promise, is righteousness, righteousness. In verse six, says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That is an odd statement, isn't it? What does that mean? Now, righteousness, first of all, denotes right relationship, being right with God. How did Abram reach that right relationship? He believed God. He believed God. And the context indicates a repeated or continuing action, a continuing belief in God, which is the essence of faith, essence of faith. In James 2, 21 to 22, talking about this, the writer of James, James says, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Faith and actions working together. Faith made by complete, complete by what he did. Now it does not say that he was righteous because of his works. Because we, we tend to go there. God accepts me and I'm righteous because of what I do or what I don't do, whatever that is. All it says is that Abram believed God. He just believed God. And God credited his belief as righteousness. He credited his belief as righteousness. He didn't do anything. He just believed God. Abram's faith had no intrinsic value. In other words, it wasn't, if I have enough faith, it's going to be good. God attributed to his faith the value of his own righteousness. Let me say that again. God attributed to his faith his own righteousness. That's God's work, it's not our work. Now, Abram's faith was not without elements of fear and uncertainty. 
You say, man, I hope I can have that kind of faith. Well, he had reservations and questions. It's encouraging to remember the way in which God patiently helped Abram deal with his fears. Referencing Eliezer of Damascus, and, and Abram asked the question right in the text, how can I know? Have you ever asked that? How can I know? How can I know? I want to know. How can I know? How can I know I am right with God? You know, some people ask that. How can I know I really am right with God? How can I know I'm acceptable to him? And, and there are people probably right here that wrestle with that. How do I know I'm acceptable to God? Christianity stands alone among faiths, beliefs, and religions. There was an article that appeared in the Seattle Times entitled, The Holiest Day of the Holiest Journey for Muslims. Okay? The Holiest Day of the Holiest Journey for Muslims. And this is what the writer wrote. He said, Muslims around the world celebrate the day of Arafat. It is the most important day of Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, all Muslims hope to make at least once in their life. Participating in Hajj is a major pillar of the five pillars of Islam. They have to go to Mecca and, and actually be there at least once in your lifetime. That's part of their religion. He says, when the pilgrims reach Mount Arafat, they spend the entire day in prayer, standing with hands stretched toward heaven. There are many emotional and tearful moments as they implore God to be merciful. They ask for unconditional forgiveness for all their sins. It is on this day alone that God promises complete absolution for the pilgrims standing at Mount Arafat. During his time on earth, the prophet said, Hajj is Arafat, meaning that standing in Arafat and asking forgiveness from the giver of grace is the most important part of the Hajj ritual. If Muslims miss the day of Arafat, no matter what the reason, their Hajj is invalidated. And then he said, those of us not performing pilgrimage this year fasted yesterday, abstaining from food, drink, and vain talk from sunup to sundown, earning God's promise of forgiveness equal to one year. That's a Muslim faith. So the only way you get forgiveness is if you get there and you ask forgiveness that one day it has to be an exact time or you can get one year's worth of forgiveness if you do this once a year. This day alone that God promises complete absolution, earning God's promises of forgiveness equal to one year. Now, the Muslims want righteousness. They want to be Forgiven, they want to be declared righteous by, by God, but we cannot earn our righteousness. That's not how we earn, we can't earn it. We all want to be good, but we cannot earn God's favor. Muslims have five pillars, acts that they must do to attain righteousness. This pilgrimage is one of them. All other religions and faith in the world can be summed up by the word do, do. Do this, do this, do this, and then you can attain righteousness and approval by God. Christianity is summed up by the word done, D-O-N-E. Jesus did for us what we could not do, died for our sins, offering forgiveness on the basis of what he has done, and we receive that by believing in him, and by believing in him, it's credited to us 
for righteousness. It's not what we do. It's what God has done for us. We receive that by belief in Jesus. Abram received God's righteousness not by working for it, but by simply believing God's promises. It's amazing the difference. It's amazing the freedom that we receive because we're not bound by this this ethic that we've got to do, do, do to please God. We have to believe in what he has done and receive Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's not anything we are or anything we do. It's a, it's a gift. Not by works. It's by faith, believing. And God attributes to our faith his righteousness. This all happened with Abram way back in Genesis. He credited it to him as righteousness. Read through Hebrews. Read through other parts of the Bible. It's amazing. That's why in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me because Jesus is that gift, his life, his death, his burial, and resurrection. In Romans chapter 4, we'll just look at this passage very quickly. 1 through 8. Paul wrote, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Here it is, Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trust God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Anybody that wrestles with guilt, anybody that wrestles with doubt, wondering, am I good enough? Can I be received? You know, all of those things, this is for you. It's by grace, faith, and he credits righteousness. He sees you as sinlessly perfect. Romans 4.25, the last part of that chapter says, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Stuart Briscoe writes, some people have wondered aloud why God should declare someone righteous. That is, forgive their sin and fit them for heaven, just because they believed they were going to become a father. But this is to miss the point. God was stimulating faith through his word so that Abram would learn to trust the Lord for all that he was unable to do for himself. In exactly the same way, God still proclaims his truth through his word in order that men and women might believe in him and trust him to be all that they could ever wish for in time in eternity. If you're here this morning and have always felt you needed to earn God's favor, stop. Stop. 
Realize, yes, our behavior is an indicator of our faith, but our behavior does not produce faith. Faith causes works, works do not cause faith. Works don't make us righteous, faith does, because God attributes righteousness to us because of our faith. I promise, that's God's promise. There's a lot more in this passage, I just wanna look at something very quickly. Verses 17 and 18, when it talks about the covenant, the cutting of the covenant, it says, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, Euphrates. We don't understand this very well, but when they talk about covenant in the Old Testament, it, the Hebrew language is, I cut a covenant. A covenant, in this, required the shedding of blood. They, they slaughtered animals and they split them between. They put them in two pieces. And it says that God walked between the pieces and in that act, he ratified the covenant. There was a ceremony in the Old Testament days, in ancient Israeli days, that that's how you ratified a covenant. You cut animals and you actually, the, both parties would walk through it and that's how you ratify a covenant. Today, we're much more civilized and we sign contracts and get them notarized, okay? That, but this was how they cut a covenant. That was the demonstration. Now note, only God walked through between the pieces. God ratified this covenant. It wasn't anything Abram did. Abram believed. Abram believed. And he promised to uphold his side of the agreement, the covenant. That covenant that validated the promise of their possession, the land of Israel, through whom Jesus would someday come, through whom we would come to know him. We in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, in 2020, are part of that covenant. This is us. This is us. We've seen the beginning. This is a continuation. This is us. God says, I promise. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of the fact that you had us in mind way back in the life of Abram and that you knew that we are going to exist and that we are going to someday need to receive that eternal life and that possession of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that we would see in a new way that you have credited our belief as righteousness and you see us that way. And I pray that you would help us to live as children of the King, sons and daughters of the living God. And that, God, you would build and we would build our life on that promise.